Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor for The War Room. Established in 1961 to unite the activities of multiple pre-existing organizations, the United States Agency for International Development has become the preeminent agency for managing U.S. foreign assistance. With missions in over 100 countries and a budget of nearly $30 billion, it has become one of the largest official aid agencies in the world and, guided by its official motto, from the American people, is a crucial player in U.S. diplomacy. Its mission statement concludes that USAID, quote, leads the U.S. government's international development and disaster assistance through partnerships and investments that save lives, reduce poverty, strengthen democratic governance, and help people emerge from humanitarian crises and progress beyond assistance, close quote. At the same time, however, the organization is at best superficially understood by an American public often suspicious of foreign aid, as well as by international actors suspicious of American intentions abroad. The best antidote to ignorance and misinformation is, of course, better information. Here at the Army War College, we are fortunate to have multiple colleagues who have worked for and with USAID. Three of them are gathered here today to help us better understand the past, present, and future of the organization and its role in our current challenging global environment. So our three guests today are Mr. Brad Arsenal, is a Foreign Service Officer with USAID. He is currently a full-time student at the U.S. Army War College. He joined USAID in 2008 and has served in Afghanistan, Cambodia, and Kenya in a range of positions. Prior to joining USAID, Mr. Arsenault spent 10 years working for development and humanitarian organizations in Africa and the Caucasus. Ms. Alexius Butler is a Foreign Service Officer with USAID and a current student at the U.S. Army War College. She joined USAID in 2006 as a Democracy and Governance Officer focusing on electoral development. She has served in Afghanistan, Iraq, Liberia, Bangladesh, and South Sudan, and most recently as the Deputy Director for the agency's mission in Haiti. Prior to joining USAID, she was the country representative for the National Democratic Institute in Uganda and also worked in the private sector before returning to graduate school to pursue international development. And finally, Professor Lee Carraher is a professor of communicative arts in the U.S. Army War College Applied Communications and Learning Lab. Professor Carraher previously served as a humanitarian assistance advisor to the military at USAID's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance where she served as the lead advisor to the U.S. Africa Command and its components. She also deployed as a civil military affairs coordinator on U.S. disaster response teams in Iraq, Syria, and the Horn of Africa. We at the Better Peace are delighted to have all of you with us today. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So I want to start with you, Alexius. What would you want our audience, both the our audience here at the War College, but also the broader audience that listens to, to these podcasts and is interested in international affairs. 
what would you want them to know most about the USAID and its activities? Um, well, thank you very much, Ron. I think that one of the things that I find myself um, continuously reminding people is that USAID is part of the U.S. government and that we are an <laughs> instrument of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you, the agency is staffed by very committed, dedicated individuals. And I personally think that it's one of the best jobs ever to have to be able to represent your country and to be able to positively impact the people, uh, impact people's lives around the world. So just like the U.S. military, our organizational culture requires a certain amount of conscientious effort in order to be able to understand but we do enjoy working with our counterparts within various U.S. government agencies. And um, we recognize that in order for us to be successful at the job that we're doing, we have to work with them. And I think that most of the USAID staff are aware of that. I got you. When you say that was a, it's a challenging job to enjoy it, of course, it made me think of a different organization's slogan, the toughest job you'll ever love. <laughs> now, Brad, you mentioned you used to have the toughest job you'll ever love, which is working for the U.S. Peace Corps. But what would you think about the U.S. A USAID and it's, it's what, what do you think is most important about it and how do you relate it to your career development up to this time? Um, to be clear for how the Peace Corps relates to USAID? Yes. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think the Peace Corps, I did it right after undergraduate, mm -hmm. right after my undergraduate degree and uh, like a lot of people in the Foreign Service, um, in a lot of careers in government, in education, um, international development, they get their start with the United States Peace Corps. And it just, for me, it was sort of a training ground to uh, gain some cross-cultural experience, to live in another culture, to gain empathy and openness. And uh, I think it's served me well as I've moved on in my career. And so when you move now with your, with your experience with USAID after having... You know, so you were in the Peace Corps, worked for various other organizations. What's the most important thing that you, th or well, the most important thing you'd like to tell somebody about what your experience with USAID has been like? Um, USAID is quite a different organization than the Peace Corps. Um, and not to knock Peace Corps in any way, um, Peace Corps is a separate thing. Mm -hmm. USAID sure. is a separate thing. USAID, uh, for me, it's we have a strict mandate to, to manage for results. Mm -hmm. And we are... I'd say uh, very honest stewards of American taxpayer dollars. Um, we want every dollar to count. We're a small agency compared to a lot of agencies. And um, like Alexia said, we take it very seriously and uh, development is a serious business for us. And so uh, every dollar we put in has to get some sort of result that in the end will benefit uh, the people that we're partnered with and the in the United States people. Do you, um, in, in general, asking the both of you, uh, if, if we're talking about... Uh, getting the most bang for the buck since you've said that most from the dollars is are there are there uh universal metrics that USAID uses to uh to check on progress or do they uh are they completely different depending on the location that you're in so we do have standardized indicators mm -hmm. um which came about with the creation of the um foreign assistance uh office within the state department in 2006, I believe. Um, and those metrics have evolved over time to be focused on not only just the quantitative, so not just the output, how mm -hmm. many people were trained, how many kids were immunized, but also on the qualitative. Mm -hmm. So what impacts 
the work that we're doing have on the community that we're working in or the country that we're working in. And also we've, we've also evolved to be more conscientious of how those impact our foreign policy mm-hmm. in those countries. Mm-hmm. And so it's been an evolution, but I think it's been a positive evolution. Definitely. Yeah. You think so, Brad? Yeah. Yes, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and with like, like, uh, like you said, we've seen it evolve and change and adapt and, um, improve. And we do, sometimes we do custom indicators mm-hmm, or true. custom mm-hmm. measurements. And then we have our standard ones mm-hmm. that we also look at. Mm-hmm. And, and both Brad and Alexius, you've, you've, uh, d- deployed as it were overseas mm-hmm. with USAID. Now, Lee, you've worked both in a mission that was deployed places, but also you've worked back at, uh, at headquarters, I guess, or to, to deal with uh, things from a, a longer distance. What, what is your perspective on the work of USAID? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, so I've worked both at the USAID headquarters in Washington. Uh, I've been part of a uh, liaison team that was based out of, a, I was actually embedded with the U.S. military uh-huh. at a combatant command headquarters, uh, but also embedded with the U.S. military in deployed settings, so at a combined joint task force and as well as at a USAID mission in a host country. So in Kenya, for example, mm-hmm. we're actually a new Brad. Ah, mm-hmm. how about that? And, uh, you know, one of the things I took away, I worked on the humanitarian mm-hmm. side of USAID's mission. Uh, and one of the things that I really appreciate about USAID's mission uh, is, and the people that I worked with, was how inspiring it is. You mm-hmm. know, so, you know, for the humanitarian assistance it's intended to save lives, alleviate human suffering, and to reduce the social and economic uh, impacts of a disaster. And so the colleagues that I worked with uh, within USAID, as well as our implementing partners, are inspiring in terms of their level of dedication, how mm-hmm. much they care to really understand what are the humanitarian needs or what are the needs of vulnerable populations that are affected by a natural disaster or a man-made disaster like conflict, uh, and to really understand and to be able to provide that assistance to save lives and alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am curious, this goes back to a little bit of what you just said now and also, Alexius, what you were talking about, about universal metrics versus specific metrics, is how much of what USAID does is uh, long-term programs in individual countries versus either disaster relief or uh, immediate conflict relief. Is there, a, is there a sense within the organization of how you balance those two things? Well, we have essentially three different spectrums within right. which the USAID operates. You know, you've got the humanitarian spectrum, you've got the stabilization spectrum, mm-hmm. and then you've got the development spectrum. Mm-hmm. And they're not, it's not quite as linear as we would probably like it to be. Um, oftentimes, we'll be going in and out of different situations. Um, but you'll have different officers who focus only on development. Mm-hmm. And then you have officers who focus only on humanitarian and those who focus only on stabilization. Going forward as part of what we're doing now with this reorganization of the agency, which is an entire agency-wide process, Mm -hmm. the goal is to have officers who can move between those spectrums a bit more easily. Um, And I think that it will only make the agency stronger Mm -hmm. because right now, you know, the humanitarian side, they've got a huge amount of information and tools that they utilize that could be utilized as well on the development side, but it's not quite as um, symbiotic as the agency leadership would like that to be. Lee? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think that as we look at it's, you know, often context uh, specific. Mm-hmm. So in places where in the midst of conflict, you might see a greater portion of U.S. assistance on the emergency disaster mm-hmm. relief side, right? Sure. 
But I think we're all, uh, I think one of the really important aspects is ensuring that whatever type of assistance, be it uh, humanitarian or stabilization or development, that there is this linkage. So that way, as we can then tra- build resiliency in our disaster relief programs, so they can support ultimately development objectives. Mm-hmm. And I think we're trying to make a much more concerted effort to ensure that those themes are clearly linked so that as a country progresses along a continuum, that it is better uh, better supported and better aligned. Mm-hmm. And that gets to the question of you know, where are the uh, the biggest challenges facing USAID? And when I say where, I mean both sort of physically, you know, are there particular parts of the world, but also um, are there particular aspects of the job that are that are specifically challenging these days for USAID. Brad, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Coming from Kenya, where, as mentioned, uh, Lee and I hit over across there. She was on the uh, on the humanitarian side, mm-hmm. and I was in the coming in out of the environment office. Oh, wow. Okay. And so we, um, that's a, a great, maybe a segue into something where the Horn of Africa, as you know, every year, maybe the U.S. government spends two to th- two to $3 billion a year, Lee, is that right, in perhaps uh, food relief or mm-hmm. food assistance. Um, right. From, so we're talking is, Somalia, Ethiopia, the whole... It's a huge area, right yeah, and, and, and in a food insecure area. Um, so what we're looking at as a mission, what we were trying to get to was how do we make that whole area more resilient so that when these shocks come, say El Nino, like mm-hmm. in 2017, so that it's not 350 million people food insecure, and I'm just putting these numbers sure. out here. They're, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. To get it to where families could handle uh, um, handle a climate shock or handle an El Nino type of situation and not need food assistance and right. move out of that level. So we looked at it even in the environment office, um, looking at climate information. Mm-hmm. How do we help farmers make better decisions? How do we m- help governments make better decisions? When do I plant things? Um, basic things like that that we might take for granted that in the Horn of Africa and East Africa, that kind of information um, could be uh, hard to come by. And our mm-hmm. office did a lot of work on helping this regional climate organization get timely, good information out to people in the region. I see. Mm-hmm. Alexius? And I would say that this is all part of the agency's current focus on the journey to self-reliance, mm-hmm. which is really designed to get countries to be partners in the devel- in their own development so that they are, they are less... Um, vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and that they're then able to um, contribute more to, like I said, their own development, but also there's a roadmap that um, we've put in for each country that we're working in, and it's also done regionally, um, which I think in the long run will certainly make not only our agency a better agency, but also the country that we're working in, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they'll be better partners for the U.S. government in the long run. Sure. I did notice, right, that in the mission statement, right, that 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 Mm -hmm. final clause, right, to help people emerge from crises and progress beyond assistance, Mm -hmm. right? So the USAID does want states to graduate, essentially, from receiving assistance. Uh, which, which leads me to ask a question that might be putting you all on the spot, but I'm going to look at you, Lee, and that is, can you think of any country that has graduated from USAID assistance and progressed beyond assistance? Yeah, I'll turn to my development colleagues uh, in terms of answering that question, uh, but I am aware that there are countries that do graduate but what are the metrics and the process by which the U.S. government and, more importantly, the host government come to that determination that they have now moved into a different economic category or they are now able to uh, develop their own uh, economic growth programs uh, and their own resilience programs on their own? Sure. 
Alexius, what do you think about that? Um, I think that there are certainly historical examples, I believe, in Central and Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. um, where we have uh, decided that, you know, they're no longer in need of our development assistance programs. Unfortunately, what you'll see is that in a lot of the countries that we were planning to draw down or reduce our assistance, something will come along. Mm -hmm. There'll be some natural disaster mm -hmm. or some regional crisis that mm -hmm. affects that country. Turkey is a prime example um, that we then have to ramp up our mm -hmm. assistance. And so it's really a good idea, in my opinion, that we stay engaged, mm -hmm. even if we're not providing de development assistance. So. Right. Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot at the War College. What's the end state? Mm -hmm. And I think in our line of work, sometimes the end state looks very different. We'd like Burundi or Sierra Leone to look like mm -hmm. South Korea in 20 mm -hmm. years. That's not going to happen. Um, and I think it's how do, what is realistic and where do we want to be and how do we support countries uh, to make them more, put, to put them on a path towards self-reliance, sure. like Alexia mm -hmm. said, and like the, like the agency's mission is right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say, but to be smart aleck about myself here, right? I mean, the reason why we call this podcast a better piece is we're drawing on the idea that any conflict, right, the ending has to be better. That doesn't mean that the ending is going to be the best possible. Right? Yes. It just means yeah. so it's an issue yeah. of improvement. Improvement is what we're aiming for, right? And, and mm. however we want to improve. And that makes me think also then about how how well, but also how does USAID work with other international organizations, uh, with the UN or with uh, the European Union, other regional development organizations? Uh, are there are there standard procedures for working with these organizations? Is there what's the what's the division of labor like between mm -hmm. USAID and other international organizations? Alexius, um, well, it, it's very country specific, right? right? And imagine. so in you won't have every international organization in every country we work in. And so um, you, while you may have a UN presence, there may not be UNDP, which is mm -hmm. which tends to be USAID's counterpart within sure. the UN. Um, and so, you know, in Latin America or in the Caribbean, the OAS may be there. They may have a development-focused program. They may be focusing only on diplomacy, et cetera. But I think that we tend to enjoy pretty good relationships because, you know, you're coming as USAID, mm -hmm. right? So you're part of the U.S. government, and your voice as a representative of USAID tends to be taken into consideration. And so the other organizations want USAID to be a part of it. Uh, my experience has been has been really positive mm -hmm. in dealing with other international organizations. Um, and But, you know, like anything, it can be personality-based sometimes. I can imagine. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, but it definitely is also very much country-specific, mm -hmm. in my experience. Mm -hmm. And Lee? Uh, yeah, on the, you know, on the humanitarian assistance side, I think we also see very positive coordination mechanisms and, mm -hmm. and coordination itself, in mm -hmm. large part because, you know, in disaster settings, speed mm -hmm. is really important. Right. It's also such where we find that the magnitude of a disaster or the magnitude of need can often outpace how much individual donor agencies can really provide. So the coordination becomes so vital to be able to know where organizations might be working, what sectors or, you know, sort of technical areas they might be working in so that we don't find duplicative efforts 
efforts or we find mm-hmm. that we're not missing a significant need in a part of the population. Uh, so for example, uh, USAID works through implementing partners. And, okay. and, and so we uh, at USAID on the humanitarian side tap into a very robust international humanitarian mm-hmm. network You know, by, by funding UN agencies, international non, and non-governmental agencies. Mm-hmm. And we work with other donors in a, in a coordination mechanism, mm-hmm. often led by uh, UN agencies. Uh, it's often technically uh, technical sector specific, um, and it is stood up in a disaster setting so that we can uh, initiate coordination really quickly. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's called the cluster system. Uh, the cluster but, system. <laughs> but it is, and it was actually an outgrowth of a disaster um, in 2004. We saw coordination didn't go well. And where, so, where was that? Uh, in uh, the West Indian <laughs> Ocean uh, tsunami response. Oh, right. So a, a massive, massive scale, massive right. geographic uh, reach. Multi-country. Right? Multi-country. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, both civilian and military. And so what we found is that there was a need for better coordination. Uh, mm-hmm. And so mechanisms were established. They've evolved and improved. Again, it's still a lot of it can be uh, not only context-specific, mm-hmm. but personality-driven, uh, as, as mm-hmm. Alexia said. And, uh, Another thing I just wanted to add is that what you'll see sometimes is that because USAID is very well staffed, well, oftentimes is better staffed mm-hmm. than some international organizations on the ground. But I mean, I've worked in countries before where DFID couldn't program their funding because they just didn't have the staff. Mm-hmm. And so they gave USAID their money in order to program it on their behalf. And so you have really mm-hmm. great relationships, honestly, on the ground, I would say. And uh, the personality thing, of course, we, we'd have to save that for another off-the-record <laughs> conversation. But I, I'm curious, does USAID ever find itself uh, competing like not just not cooperating, but competing with other organizations, either either organi- uh, international organizations that would prefer to uh, operate on their own or even um, national organizations that are ambivalent about the presence of the United States or is USAID usually when they show up, they're welcome enough that there isn't that kind of uh, competition. Can you think of an example? Yeah, uh, well, at least my experience in the three countries that I've worked with mm-hmm. in aid, it's I can't think of one instance, uh, and I, we did some disaster relief in Cambodia when I was there. I was the um, the point person for mm-hmm. the embassy during the flooding of 2011. Um, I can't think of any time when we were at odds or competing for something. It was always collegial. Um, collegial people were ready to share openly. I think USAID was ready to share openly, and we everybody was going for the same kind of best results. So... Uh, I'm not saying it hasn't happened or doesn't mm-hmm. happen in other countries, but I can't personally think of one time in my experience it's happened. That's fair. Yeah. Alexia, no, is that I would agree with Brad. Mm-hmm. I haven't had an experience where there was competition. There may have been instances where there is a little bit of duplication mm-hmm. of effort, mm-hmm. but you know, foreign assistance resources are scarce right. around the world. Mm-hmm. And so everybody wants to maximize what they're doing. And if mm-hmm. I know that you're doing this activity over here and you don't need any additional assistance or support, then it's great because then we can focus our efforts on something else. Right. And so I think it's in everybody's best interest to cooperate. And that's been my experience. That's fair. Well, while we talk about cooperation and coordination, Lee, I'm turning to you as someone who's worked especially with uh, military commands. And we are here at the U.S. Army War College. And what is the what is the relationship between USAID and the U.S. military like? 
I think it's an excellent relationship. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't say that in a Pollyanna kind of way. It really is one where I've seen that there is a great respect on both sides. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of investment and time and personnel mm-hmm. in order to create that connective tissue to, have, to establish and to mature those coordination mechanisms. Right. Uh, so that what we don't find is that in a disaster, we're standing on the tarmac wondering who's who and what do they do in a disaster mm-hmm. response. And so, for example, uh, one of the some, one of some of the main coordination mechanisms, steady state. So even before a disaster strikes, is that USAID, uh, particularly in the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, has humanitarian assistance advisors to the military. Mm-hmm. And so we actually then post them at combatant command. So, for example, I was the advisor uh, to the Africa Command, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have advisors at all the geographic combatant commands and even some of the subordinate uh, component commands. It's, so, for example, at Three Meth in Okinawa. Or mm-hmm. Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. So that means that you're ready if if any sort of emergency were to arise within that command's area of operations, they, there would be somebody from USAID present in policy discussions. Absolutely. So, and, and that and the, the best part of this is that because we've actually been able to grow the staff, the CivMil staff, is that when a disaster strikes, or when we're even planning for a potential contingency mm-hmm. that uh, in the event a disaster does strike, is that we have uh, personnel in Washington that will engage with uh, uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Staff. We have advisors at the combatant commands to do that level of planning. And then we can deploy civil military affairs coordinators as part of our responses to any deployed node with the U.S. military. And so by having that linkage at the strategic uh, operation and tactical level actually facilitates a level of coordination and to ensure that what we're asking for in terms of support from the U.S. military is appropriate, it's timely, and that we at USAID understand the potential operational impacts of our ask for Mm -hmm. the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. And do you feel as though uh, USAID is included early enough in discussions of policy so that I'm thinking of a a complaint that happens in in different contexts, not in USAID contexts, is, uh, say, with certain operations, is that that one organization, that one organization cooks the meal and the other one does the dishes, Mm -hmm. right? And that that USAID's responsibility is, one one could imagine that USAID does the dishes, right? After after stuff's been broken, then somebody's got to come and put it all back together which can be frustrating unless, of course, you do get a chance to buy the groceries and cook the dinner, too. And so on a policy level, is USAID uh, integrated well enough, do you think, and do I ask the whole panel, integrated enough into policymaking so that uh, when USAID is deployed and, and operates, that there's a sense of ownership and uh, responsibility for what's being what has been decided? Yeah, and in some of the contexts that I've worked in, uh, and, and I've not worked a whole lot in the policy realm in Washington Mm -hmm. on um, uh, humanitarian and development issues. Um, But from what I saw from my vantage point is that there's been a growing role in place for USAID in policy discussions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, and I think we see this in terms of the types of uh, countries and conflict or uh, types of disasters that we're working in, more often than not, they're conflict areas. Mm-hmm. And there are often ones that have that are politically charged, that have that are not going to be solved through humanitarian assistance. It's not going to be solved through military or even diplomatic means. And so what we start to see in a lot of policy discussions is where USAID has a seat at the table to talk about 
What are the humanitarian implications? What is the humanitarian picture? What might the U.S. government be able to contribute towards an overall U.S. government response or engagement with a particular country? So, uh, you know, I think that that's where I think we're seeing that increasingly. Uh, mm-hmm. And so USAID is able to talk about uh, some of the countries that are at the top of the foreign policy list. Mm-hmm. Good. Alexis, you're nodding your head. You, you think you, 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 would, you would concur? Yeah, I would definitely concur. I mean, USAID is very much a field-based organization. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see in most of the countries that I've worked in is the strategy for that country is part of, it's developed as part of what's called the integrated country strategy, mm-hmm. right? And um, in my experience, that strategy ends up being based on USAID strategy in that country. And I think that's because the time horizon for the activities that we're doing on the development side is usually five to 10 years, mm-hmm. whereas the integrated country strategies are running about two to three years. And so that actually drives that strategy for the country. And so I think that we're very much engaged, certainly at that field level. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting a little bit close to the end of time, but there's a couple questions I wanted to make sure I got in. So I'm going to ask this one right now, because I, I'm that one of the issues connected to you, USAID, your representatives of the United States of America, the U.S. government, um, uh, you have, you're of course protected by the United States military while you're there. Have, um, have any of you had experiences where you had to leave a place in a great big hurry? Um, and what was the role of the United States military in getting you out of that place? Um, yeah, I think that question's for me. Uh, <laughs> um, so I was in South Sudan um, when the Civil War broke out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I believe, December 14, 2014 or mm-hmm. 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were you know, in the embassy when you know shooting starts at 2 a.m. and it just didn't stop and it kept going. We were you know in duck and cover for the entire day. Couldn't leave. Multiple days later, the airport is shut down, and there was a decision that we needed to get out of the country. But there was no way to do that except chartering a plane or asking the military to come in mm-hmm. and get us out. And it was a huge undertaking. Not only um, did they have to provide the transportation for us to get out, but they had to secure the route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and this was not something that I think was on anyone's radar. Um, and so they had to come up with a plan in order to do this. Um, and it, it then expanded because the U.S. Embassy is there also to protect American citizens of outside of the embassy. And so now we've also got to, you know, expend, expand this um, service to U.S. citizens and country. And there are a lot of dual citizens there. And so it was a huge logistical undertaking for the military. Um, and there's actually pictures that you can see of us being evacuated, you know, with the Air Force guys helping us mm-hmm. onto the cargo planes. I think it was a C-17. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people had never been on a military plane before because I'd been in Iraq. I had been on that plane. So I knew that you only need you get one bag that you can sit on your lap. <laughs> You're not bringing a rolly bag on board. You don't get multiple suitcases, et cetera. Um, and so it was a little bit of a, a learning exercise for some others who had to leave their stuff behind. Um, but, you know, we were really appreciative because it was super efficient. Mm-hmm. Once the decision to do it came down, you know, we were ready to go and they were there. Um, and then they took off. They dropped us off on the tarmac in the Nairobi airport. 
Um, and then they took off. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was really, it's, I think it's a great example of how we rely on the military for our own personal security and not just for, you know, providing support to the security in the country. Mm -hmm. That I can think of a few better examples of coordination between organizations, right, than actually rescuing people who need mm -hmm. to be rescued. Um, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but I did want to uh, want to end with a give each of you a chance to say: Is there um, what is your sense of the the future of USAID? Like, wh what do you think? What do you think is the either the the biggest challenge uh, in the future or the biggest opportunity in the future for the organization? And I'm going to turn and look at you first, Brad. Okay. Um... We keep talking about resiliency, and I think the agency is a resilient organization. Its core principles have stayed fairly steady for the since 1961, since it was created. There seems to be still genuine support from no matter what party you sit in uh, for the agency. And uh, as as the world becomes more complex, I think the American people and the U.S. government will see where USAID really plugs in and, and the value that we do add uh, to our own security and our own best interests. So I'm confident. I'm yeah. sticking around. All right. Well, I like the sound of that. Alexius, what do you think? Yeah. Like I said, I still think it's the best job in the world. And, you know, just building on what Brad said, I think one of our biggest challenges is continuing to communicate to the American public the value of what it is we're doing and how important the work that we're doing is to the ongoing security and stabilization Efforts. Fair enough. And Lee, yeah, final really, thought? Yeah, I, I echo actually both of what my, my colleagues say. And I'd say that, you know, USAID will continue to have uh, a large role to play, especially as we see that disasters are increasing in numbers, frequency, duration, and magnitude. Uh, and so therefore, it's becoming increasingly hard to provide assistance. And so uh, there's going to be a continued need for USAID's involvement in the world. Okay. The world, as long as the world stays complicated, we'll need people who can help solve problems, we'll right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I thank you. On that hopeful note, we'll have to bring this conversation to end. I want to thank Lee Carraher, Alexius Butler, and Brad Arsenault for joining us here today on The War Room. I want to thank all of you for listening to us today. I hope that you will follow up with any questions or comments that you have or any suggestions for future programs. But until next time, from The War Room, I'm Ron Granieri. Thanks for joining us. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.